Hello, and welcome to Dialogue Gospel Study for Sunday, June 25th, 2023 with Bob Reese. I'm Rebecca Deschweinitz, and on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation, uh, and along with my colleagues uh, at Dialogue, Chris Kimball and Michael Austin, who's in the background running tech, we're pleased to welcome you. Whether you're a longtime listener or have just found Dialogue Gospel Study, we invite you to check out all that Dialogue offers at our website, dialoguejournal.com. There you can find previous gospel study lessons, other offerings like Dialogue Out Loud and Dialogue Book Report, as well as links to all the great shows in the Dialogue Podcast Network. You can also find the latest issue of the journal, including our just-released summer 2023 special issue on health and healing, along with the entire Dialogue archive, which includes more than five decades of the journal and its scholarship, poetry, essays, sermon, fiction, and art. In the very first issue of Dialogue, founder Eugene England wrote, My faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me into relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into dialogue. Faith and curiosity and awe continue to guide the work we do. Find out how you can support and secure the future of the oldest independent Mormon studies journal at the donate link at dialoguejournal.com. For those live on Zoom today, as always, you're invited to post respectful and relevant comments and questions in the chat. We'll follow along on Facebook, where we're also running a live stream. Our teacher today is Bob Reese. Uh, until his recent retirement, Bob was visiting professor and director of Mormon studies at Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. He has also taught at UCLA, UC Santa Cruz, UC Berkeley, University of Wisconsin, and in Lithuania, where he was a Fulbright scholar. In addition to teaching and scholarship, uh, Bob has served as assistant dean of the School of Fine Arts, UCLA, and the UCLA Royal College of Art and Royal College of Music Programs in London. He is the co-founder and current vice president of the Bountiful Children's Foundation, a humanitarian organization that addresses malnutrition among Latter-day Saint and other children in the developing world. Most recently, he co-founded and is the president of Fast Forward for the Planet an initiative that seeks to unify the faiths of the world in addressing climate change and earth stewardship. Reese has published widely on Mormon and religious studies, as well as on politics, culture, literature, education, the arts, and LGBTQ studies. His most recent publications include A New, Wit a New Witness to the World, Reading and Rereading the Book of Mormon, and Why I Stay Too, The Challenge of Discipleship for Contemporary Latter-day Saints. He just finished co-editing with Tom Griffith and Brent Rushforth, a collection of essays in honor of Eugene England, remembering Jean, how he changed our lives. He's currently working on a collection of essays titled Realizing the Restoration. A former editor of Dialogue Bob's most recent publication in the journal appears in our summer 2023 issue. That essay is Truth and Reconciliation, Reflections on the 40th Anniversary of the LDS Church's Lifting the Priesthood and Temple Restrictions for Black Mormons of African descent. Bob has served as bishop, member of the Baltic States Mission Presidency, a high counselor, and an institute teacher. He and his wife, Gloria Gardner-Reese, who's a poet and teacher of literature who will also be participating today, currently teach primary in their California ward. As with any Latter-day Saint scripture study class, the views expressed today are those of the individual teacher and participants. They do not necessarily reflect those of the Dialogue Foundation, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or any other organization. 
Our opening prayer today will be offered by Dr. Kimberly Applewhite Teeter, proud mother of two daughters. Kimberly is a licensed clinical psychologist practicing in Salt Lake City. Uh, she's featured in Why I Stay, Contemporary Challenges of Discipleship, which was edited by Bob. She has other publications and has been making the rounds on podcasts. I've enjoyed listening to uh, her always uh, important insights. Uh, she's also the assistant director of the Deborah Bonner Unity Gospel Choir. Uh, we'll start today with music, because I have been given much, performed by the American Heritage Youth Chorus. Amen. We're thrilled to have Kimberly. Sorry for the little bit of a tech issues. Kimberly is joining us from um, across the street from Notre Dame in uh, Notre Dame in in Paris. So, uh, Bob, I think that this um, demonstrates that we're all at the mercy of technology. Um, this lesson is called Jesus' Last Great Teaching. There's much to be joyful about and much to be grateful for in the scripture readings of this Sunday. In his book, Wonder Works, Literary Invention in the Science of Stories, Angus Fletcher reminds us that in the earliest libraries, scripture and literature were joined together. Fletcher argues that joining produces two great powers. First, story or narrative. And the second, what he calls the stirring of emotion, love, wonder, and faith. In these power, it's in these powers that we see used with such great skill and beauty in today's scriptures. As a teacher of literature and sacred texts, I like to tell my students to pay particular attention to detail. They hardly ever do, at least to the detail I want them to see, but it is in the detail that the interpretive richness awaits our revelation. There are many elements of scripture that reveal love and wonder and faith, some of which we will uncover in these scriptural narratives. Today, I want to focus on two stories that come to the very end of Christ's ministry, and therefore of particular import because they help prepare us for the revolutionary revelation that begin when he ascends into heaven and turns his kingdom over to us. The first story is about one disciple, still lamenting and at the same time longing for her Lord, who visits the great absence of the tomb on the morning of the first day of the week. The second story is about a group of discouraged and dispirited disciples who arrive at the shore of the Sea of Galilee after a night of fruitless fishing. I believe we are intended to see ourselves in both of these stories. In the first, as individuals, seeking a personal and intimate relationship with Jesus, and in the second, as a member of a group of somewhat lost and disoriented disciples, Jesus hopes to teach how to find themselves through serving others, a lesson not fully learned even now 2,000 years after his explicit and dramatic teaching. So the first story is about one disciple at the empty tomb. With the great and dreadful despair and the brutal persecution, crucifixion, and death of last week's lesson behind us, with the grief still heavy in our hearts, we turn to the most joyful news angels have ever spoken. He is not here. He is risen from the dead. 
modern believers, knowing the truth from this truth from childhood, don't hear the news with the same heart leap of joy and astonished hope as if those who saw the Savior crucified and nailed to the cross, who saw his broken body taken down and buried in a stone sepulcher. Even though he had told them he would rise from the grave, his words, if heard at all, would have been taken as metaphor or folklore. But the words of angels, however they sound to human ears, carry a different import, penetrate the heart and soul with triumphant truth. It is significant that it is a woman who first goes to the tomb. In fact, it's women who do. The two Marys in Matthew's telling, the four named women in Mark's, the generic women in Luke's, and Mary Magdalene alone in John's telling. What is further significant is that after she found the tomb empty and had run to tell the disciples, and after the disciples have come to see for themselves, it is Mary Magdalene alone who remains behind. There is much apocryphal literature in legend and lore about this mysterious woman, woman who besides Jesus' mother is the singularly most significant woman in Jesus' life. There's no more powerful episode in the relationship than what happens on this particular Sunday morning. To understand what fully happens, we must go back to an earlier episode which, in which the seeds of this day were planted, the story of the anointing of Jesus' body, the burial. Told variously in the four Gospels, the account I want to focus on is from Matthew's Gospel. In his narrative, the anointing takes place in Bethany, Thus, two days before the Passover, Matthew records, a woman came to Jesus with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume. So expensive, the scriptures say it, took, it would take a year's wages to have purchased it. Jesus is reclining at the table, and when the disciples see this woman coming in, they're indignant. Why is this waste, they ask. This perfume could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. Jesus says to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing for me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will always have me. And she poured this perfume on my body. She did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done for me will be told in her memory. I believe we are intended to see this and other recorded anointings as a possible foreshadowing, as a possible remembrance of what happens at the tomb, and therefore see this nameless woman as Mary Magdalene. Collating several of the anointing stories, I try to capture this scene in a poem I call Spike Night, which my wife Gloria will read. She had sold all her possessions for this small vial, distilled from rose-purple flowers that blossomed in mountains on the outer side of the imagined world. She had placed it for keeping in an alabaster box, hunted down by women in her family for seven generations, and had sealed it with beeswax to inure the aroma, which reminded her of earth, the smell of beauty and loss of love 
something else she could not name but knew in her heart. The disciples distracted with scriptural disputation, she stole behind him and broke the seal, pouring the perfume profusely on his crown. He took a quick, deep breath, closed his eyes, and reached up to touch her hands. When the scent reached the others, they turned as one toward her, knowing immediately what it was and what it cost. Judas, whose heart was at first, spoke with scorn. This is wasteful. Think the poor could be fed. Jesus, his hands still on hers, pulsed his eyes took another deep breath and said, Why would you trouble her when she has done this beautiful thing to me? This fragrance with which she has blessed me is for my burial. Open your nostrils. Breathe it in. Breathe me into your hearts as she has As mentioned earlier, it is in John that we learned that early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. She runs immediately to tell the disciples after Peter and John raced to the tomb to verify Mary's report and returned to Jerusalem. Mary alone returns to the tomb. Something draws her back. Perhaps she seeks some, some trace of him some emblem or remembrance, or perhaps she is simply seeking solace for her broken heart, which explains her weeping. So distraught is she that, she that she is unaware of the presence of another person standing nearby. Touched by her sorrow, he addresses her generically as a woman. Why are you weeping? Who is it you are looking for? Although found with grief and not recognizing who he is, she responds respectfully, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you put him, and I will get him. Filled with compassion for her sorrow and touched by her seeking, he speaks her name with what we imagine is great tenderness, Mary. As soon as he does, her whole being is filled with wonder, and she exclaims, Rabona, her teacher, she reaches out to touch him. I imagine this scene in the night before in a poem called The Empty Tomb. Again, Gloria, it's reading. The cross fading in the darkening east, the women turn to the city. Reaching their abode, they lay down together, cradling one another as they wept and moaned as Israel's women had over the centuries. That night, the Magdalene slept fitfully, hearing the hammering, the agonized cries, seeing the blood dropping as if into eternity, her own tears incarnadine. She dreamed that she too was wrapped in linen, lying beside a spice and perfume flowering the air. She heard what she thought was the thunder of the rolling stone which startled her awake. He arose early, taking mirth and aloes, cassia and cinnamon and aromatic oils and ointments 
and were astonished to find the great stone rolled away and the tomb empty. And then there were angels. Reuben is as the sun. He is risen from the dead. Later, alone, not fully comprehending, she sat in the tomb, touching the linen, and then, holding it to her face, went weeping into the garden, her heart not daring to hope. She heard but did not recognize the voice. Why are you weeping? Momoyusuke. Supposing the gardener, she said, Oh, if you have taken him, tell me where, and I will take him away. Mary. He tur she turned, reaching toward him. My teacher. He stepped back. I know you want to touch me, and I want to touch you. But we must wait until I have returned to our father. Wait for me. And then he must come. She turned again toward Jerusalem, and she went. We now turn to the second story, which is also about the stirring of love, wonder, and faith. It is interesting to note that the first lesson Jesus teaches his apostles not only echoes the first declaration of his mission, the, the lesson he teaches right here echoes the first lesson of his mission when he went to the synagogue and read through the scrolls about his mission to the poor, three years later, she two years later, oh, excuse me, but this story also represents the culmination of all he's been trying to teach them. And by extension, all he's tried to teach us is his, his modern disciples. This episode is found only in the Gospel of John. Significantly, it takes place at the Sea of Galilee location of some of Jesus' most important teachings. Following Jesus' death, his disciples, disoriented by recent events and uncertain as to the future, without the physical presence of Jesus, returned to their home on the shores of Galilee, not knowing what else to do. Peter declares, I'm going out fishing, to which his fellow apostles respond, we will go with you. Note, but after Jesus dies, they don't get together and say, how, what can we do to further his kingdom? How can we, how can we be doing, being his teachers? How can we take his message to all the world? A seasoned fisherman, after a night of fishing, they come in not having caught a single fish. Remember, God is the great dramaturg, the great arranger of dramatic elements for, for the effective teachings. In other words, the fact they haven't cut any fish is not an accident. As we will soon see. As they bring their boats toward the shore, they notice the figures. They think maybe Jesus, but they're not sure. He asks, friend, I love this. But they've all left him. Peter has denied him. And he calls them his friend. Friends, have you caught anything? They respond that they haven't. Jesus then says, shoot the net to starboard and you will catch fish. Following his command, they find the net immediately filled overflowing with more than 150 fish. In fact, 152, 
They're so numerous, they counsel. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus had performed a similar miracle we counted in the fifth chapter of Luke. That caused Peter and the others to drop their nests and follow him. It may be that it is repeating a miracle now is to remind them of the time we first called them to follow him. Perhaps the similarity is what causes John to exclaim, it is the Lord. True to his personality, Peter immediately plunges into the sea and hauls the leather fish to the shore. Then comes the great teaching. Jesus, aware of their hunger and fatigue, doesn't teach them right now. Instead, he has built a fire and prepared a breakfast of bread and fish for his chosen disciples, showing them once more two important lessons. One, that those called to serve must be servants, not master, and that those who are physically fed are more likely open to spiritual food. Although he has already prepared the meal, he invites them, bring some of the fish you have caught. This is ironic. They haven't caught any fish. But it's also caring because Jesus credits them with having done so, instilling in them confidence. It is an important detail. He invites them, come and have breakfast. Note that while they have been laboring through the night, Jesus has taken care to build a fire, prepare food for them to eat. That he does more than invite them to sit down as seen in the careful phrasing. Jesus took the bread and the fish and gave it to them. In other words, he is literally feeding his fallen. Imagine this, the Son of God, the creator of earth and heaven, the creator of the universe, preparing and serving breakfast to his fallen. And if our imaginations permit, ourselves sitting at that table, being fed by our Lord, Notice what a great teacher he is, what he's teaching them. What is he teaching them? I find the clue in Linda Gregg's lovely poem, Fishing in the Keep of Silence. She says, God, who thinks about poetry all the time, breathes happily as he repeats to himself, there are fish in the net, lots of fish, this time in the net for heart. It is in the net of his heart that Jesus is trying to catch them. And in the net of their hearts, if they are to be, as he already called them, fishers of men and women. As soon as they have eaten their fill, Jesus turns to his chief apostle and asks, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Truly love, as the NIV commentary states, refers to a love in which the entire personality, including the will, is involved. Scholars have puzzled for centuries over the antecedent of the, the ambiguous, these, do you love me more than these? Is the question, do you love me more than you love these other apostles? Do you love me more than these other apostles love me? Or my preferred reading, do you love me more than you love these things, including this meal and all these extra fish I've just provided for you? Or perhaps even you love me more than you love the world itself. 
whatever his understanding, Peter answers to clarity, yes, Lord, I love you. Jesus responds with the imperative, feed my lamb. Immediately asks the same question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Perhaps thinking that Jesus hasn't heard him, Peter responds and repeats his initial words, yea, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus then gives a similar but not identical command, take care of my sheep. Inexplicably, Jesus asks a third question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Hurt by the in insistent question, Jesus responds offensively, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Once more, Jesus gives the command, feed my sheep. What's going on here? We need to remind ourselves both of what a great teacher is and how he teaches. It is telling that Jesus refers to his chief apostle by his original name, Simon, not his new name, Peter, meaning the rock. Simon means hearing. Jesus may be suggesting that Peter hasn't been listening, hasn't been hearing what Jesus has truly been trying to teach him over the course of his ministry. That is, before he was called from his name, fishing nets, Peter may have been more open than he is now to Jesus' essential message regarding the poor. It may also be that Jesus intends to humble Peter, to let him know, especially in light of the recent, his recent denials of the Lord, that he has fallen short of being the rock that Jesus needs to lead his church. Also note that there's not only that this not, not only is this the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples following his resurrection, but that his three questions and Peter's three responses echo the three questions asked of Peter the night of Jesus' betrayal and Peter's three denial. The three interrogatives can be summarized as follows. That is, do you love me? Peter, do you really understand what loving me means? You will soon be responsible for leading my church. You will represent me on earth and will be charged with teaching others the gospel, including feeding the hungry and caring for the poor. Eventually, Peter, you will be put to death for my cause. Therefore, my question to you is, do you really understand what loving me means? If Peter's answer is yes, and if ours is as well, then Jesus' final question while on earth, follow me, is intended for the saints in both the ancient and the modern church to do as Jesus commands Peter, feed my sheep. What is Jesus really saying to Peter and to us? It's what Pe Peter has missed and what most of us miss. Peter, I have just fed you, and I provided enough fish for you to feed many others. What are you going to do with all this fish? Peter, having had his own hunger satisfied, seems to have forgotten the bounty with which he and his fellow disciples have been blessed. He doesn't ask, as we might expect he would, after watching Jesus ministering to the poor for three years. Lord, thank you for the bounty of these fish with which we have so, you have so generously and graciously fed us. To whom shall we give these fish or better? saying to his disciples, let's give these sacks to fish to the poor. Now it seems that Peter is no longer even aware of this bounty, or been thinking about the hungry. Some doubt 
in the very streets and houses nearby. To those of us living in the modern developed church, Jesus is saying something similar. I blessed you with enormous wealth. You live in large houses, more spacious than you need, and often some of your bedrooms go empty. You drive expensive cars and pass by the poor and homeless on roads and byways. You eat three meals or more a day. Your martyrs and pantries are fully stocked. You have enormous freedom of movement and choice. You have more of everything than you need. You have more luxuries than any previous generation in history. My old teacher, Hugh Nibley, says, to be wealthy is to have more than you need. Jesus' question to us is what you intend to do with all of these things and what you can bless. You love me enough to follow me and give generously to the poor. Of course, some of us not only do not think of sharing our abundance with others beyond what the church asks in tithes and offerings, we somehow think that we deserve that abundance, that much of what we enjoy is the result of our own industry and our own reward for living righteously. We seem to forget that in our time, the church has added a fourth mission to its reason to extra, to care for the poor or a needy. Many of, us have, many of us have the other missions, to preach the gospel, to redeem the dead, to perfect the saints, written indelibly, indelibly in our hearts, unaware that the third the third mission, perfecting saints, cannot be fulfilled without the fourth. What we seem not to have internalized is that with us, God is neither ungenerous nor parsimonious. To those who are thirsty, he does not just give her a drink of water. To land that is parched, he does not just send a little rain. To souls that are in need of blessings, he does not just speak a few perfunctory words. As he said to Israel, for I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessings upon my offspring. To pour means to strain as well continuously or profusely. Such gracious, gracious, abundant overflowing is characteristic of God's gifts to us. As the poet Robert Herrick says, God's hands are round and smooth. The gifts may fall free from them and hold back none at all. It is significant in this last teaching, Jesus used two different words for love in Greek, agape, which Paul calls charity, and Moroni calls the pure love of Christ, and philia, which implies affinity, friendship, fondness, brother and sister. Both are necessary for true disciples. It is also significant that Jesus tells Peter to feed both his lambs, that is the children, and the sheep, the adults. But he first says lambs suggest that our primary focus should be on feeding, literally and spiritually, children, since they are the most vulnerable. And then turn our attention to feeding and caring for others. This is the work my colleagues and I have been doing for the past 15 years in the Bout of the Children's Foundation feeding children throughout the world. Our primary mission is to address malnutrition among among Latter-day Saints children. If any of you listening today wishes to support our work, you can do so by visiting our website, bountifulchildren.org. It's joyful work. And I should participate in it. 
this October 2014 general conference address, are we not all beggars? Other Jeffrey Holland states, down through history, poverty has been of humankind's greatest and most widespread challenges. Its obvious tone is usually physical, but also the spiritual and emotional damage it can bring may be even more debilitating. In any case, the great Redeemer has issued no more persistent call, no more persistent call than to join in in lifting this burden from the people. As Jehovah, he said he would judge the house of Israel harshly because the spoil of the poor is in your lawsuits. Those of us living in the modern church, members as well as leaving, need to imagine Jesus' question to Peter is directed to us and us individually and collected. Is the wealth with which I have blessed you and the church truly being given to the poor and the needy in as great a measure as possible? Are there any malnourished children among you? Are there any brothers and sisters who go to bed hungry at night? If so, are you feeding them? Are there any naked among you? If so, are you clothing them? Are you providing shelter for the homeless? This, of course, the same great and disturbing teaching, get, teaching Jesus gives in the 25th chapter of Matthew. Inasmuch I've done it unto the least of these, my brothers and sisters. Or in Jesus' native language, I love this, an Aramaic, what he really said, inasmuch as you are done to the least of these, my little brothers and sisters, you have done it to me, or you have not done it to me. As Francisco Golden states, the great metaphor of the heart of the gospel, according to St. Matthew, is that those who suffer and those who show love for those who suffer are joined through suffering and grace. Jesus Christ. The question Jesus asked of those at the heart of Ryan Ward's new book, and they had no poor among them, Salvation, Liberation, and the Meaning of Restoration, just published by Kofun Books. Questions that burn through our excuses, burn through my excuses like sulfuric acid. I highly recommend Ward's book. As I say in my introduction to it, it awakens the words of Christ to a fallen world. I can think of no other book that I've read in the past 30 years, except for the scriptures, that has challenged my mind as deeply, opened my heart as fully, and awakened my soul as profoundly as one starts. In calling us to follow Jesus, in creating society in which there are truly no part among us. I also call your attention uh, Alan Jones' beautiful book, The Poor in Scriptures, which is a collection of all of the scriptures in our sacred works that address this thing of, re of the poor. Returning to this week's lesson, as in most of Jesus' teaching, symbolism is important as it is in this narrative. The fish is an ancient symbol found in most of the world's religious and secular traditions. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, fish stands for many things, procreation, fertility, wisdom, regeneration, and evangelism, fishers of men and women. The Greek word for species is an anagram for Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior, and was a symbol by which Christians, early Christians, identified one another. Thus, it is a prime symbol of Christ himself. Even further, as the Penguin Dictionary of Symbols states, says fish was also a food eaten 
by the risen Christ became a symbol of the Eucharistic feast and is often depicted alongside bread as it is in this episode from John. Consider the possibility on this particular morning that Jesus is linking his last meal that he served his, his disciples, this meal that he served his disciples with the last, his last supper, suggesting that the bread and fish on this occasion are to remind his disciples and us not only of his great atoning sacrifice, but also that partaking of the truth he imparts to them constitutes a reminder of the covenant they have made that we make weekly, will make this very day with Father Jesus, including in ministering to the poor. By feeding them breakfast, he also tends to remind them that there is of their, their responsibility to those caught in the gospel that does not end with conversion, or also to care for and nurture them. I believe that char charge extends beyond the boundaries of our own words and states. Also, Jesus used both bread and fish in this episode can't help but remind the apostles of his miraculous cheating of the 5,000, which also took place near the Sea of Galilee, which he does before he begins teaching those people who are gathered. That is, before he teaches them his parables and teaches them his lessons, he feeds them first, just as he does in this scene, just as he expects us to do. He might also be suggesting that while feeding thousands with five loaves and two feet required a miracle, dispensing these extra fish to the poor, which they have received through no effort of, through no, through no effort of their own, requires only their minimal effort, as does our feeding to the poor. In this conference address referred to earlier, Elder Holland states, I don't know exactly how each of you should fulfill your obligation to those who do not or cannot always help themselves. I do not know, but I know that God knows, and he will help you and guide you in compassionate acts of discipleship if you are conscientiously wanting and praying for ways to keep the commandments he has given again and again. That is, Jesus is not saying to us, as they said to the rich man, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and I will give you in treasure in heaven. Then comes the following, then come. Then, he says, come, follow me. He is, as Elder Holland suggests, asking us to do something, and for most of us, do something more. I like to think that after Jesus questioned Peter, his repeated commands to feed his lambs and sheep, and his also command, follow me. Peter finally understands what Jesus has tried to teach him, what Jesus has been trying to teach him. And he called, I imagine, I like to imagine Peter calls the other apostles to gather up these fish and deliver it to the poor. My reason for imagining such a conclusion is not only Peter's faith and courage that resulted in his later crucifixion at Rome, but also the evidence in his first general epistles of the church that suggests that Peter has internalized on this day Jesus' last great teaching. He writes this, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for one another, love one another deeply from the heart, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling, Think of what you could use, or excuse me. Each of you should use whatever gifts you have received to serve others 
administration stewards and God's grace in his various forms. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing. God wants you to be. Be eager to serve, not learning those of those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Jesus' last great teaching may also be the ultimate challenge to the restored church. Zelwer Holland says at the conclusion of his Nashville address, quote, in 1831, Revelation to the prophet Joseph Smith, the Lord said to the poor, the Lord said that the poor would one day see the kingdom of God coming to deliver them in power and great glory. Of the Holland ends, may we help fulfill that prophecy by coming in the power and glory of our membership in the true church of Jesus Christ to do what we can to deliver any we can and the poverty that pulls them captive and destroys so many of their dreams, that destroys so many These last great teachings of the Savior, one singular intimate, one of singular intimate devotion to Christ by Mary, and the other of joining together as a community in church to see the poor and needy, is a call to the, to the children of God in every generation. By way of summary, Jesus' words, the poor you have always with you, is not a statement of inevitability, but rather a condemnation of our refusing to make whatever sacrifices are necessary for feeding the poor. And the words, and they had no poor among them, is not the utopian ideal of some millennial church, but a call to us to make Zion here and now. Zion, a word that evokes the emotions of love, wonder, and faith, but especially In the name of him, he calls us to a higher and deeper discipleship. Our Lord, Jesus of Nazareth, amen. amen. Before we officially close, I think we can spend at least a few minutes uh, in conversation. And I'd like to introduce um, Ryan Ward, who, whose book Bob mentioned. Um, he'll be saying the closing prayer, but maybe he can be part of this conversation. He's a professor of psychology uh, from New Zealand, currently uh, not in such a drastic time zone difference uh, visiting in California. Uh, and the, the name of his book is, uh, And There Was No Poor Among Them, Liberation, Salvation, and the Meaning of the Restoration. So I'll invite Ryan to join us and just talk for a few minutes, um, um, you know, together. Um, Bob, you've gotten us to think, um, you've stirred our hearts in thinking about um, the love and wonder and faith and message of the Savior uh, uh and his last teachings in in the in the New Testament, um, and I'm really kind of thinking um, kind of more broadly about um, what is what is necessary, like thinking about um, you know what he's seeing as important as he's really finally turning his kingdom over to us, 
and these two stories and how they kind of reflect what that what that message is. And in some ways they seem um to be intention, right? So Mary, um, Mary's great devotion, kind of lavishing, um, um, expensive oil, like things on Christ, and then this um, very direct call to to feed literally and spiritually um, those who are who are suffering and who need the healing grace of Christ um, in their lives. Uh, anyway, so Ryan, I did invite you to share some thoughts and Bob, maybe to just talk about that too, a little bit more. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, first of all, just want to thank Bob for, you know, I did changing process and it's been great getting to know him and his passion for, um, what I view as true discipleship. I mean, it's been a real, um, honor to sort of be involved with him in this. And I, I think, um, I think, um, I really love those two stories, uh, that, that Bob shared. Um, and we were having this discussion in Sunday school, actually a few weeks ago. And, um, one of my friends, um, said of Mary's, um, or of the woman's act, um, right. Uh, that one of the things that it represents is that God, um, Jesus in this case is so gracious that um, he's willing to accept any kind of act of devotion that we can come up with, right? So um, this this person, you know, and and Bob's poem sort of beautifully illustrates that had you know probably saved up a lot of money, um, put this this ointment in a family heirloom, maybe right, and and like this was her ultimate way of showing her devotion to Jesus. And, you know, even though other people might have thought of something different or in some people's eyes, it might have been considered wasteful for Jesus. It was the intention behind that. Right. It, and and so that he, he fully and completely accepted that um, with a grace that that just um, validates our own you know, our own, um, devotion. Um, and I thought that that was a beautiful insight. Like God's less concerned with what we're offering than with just the fact that we're offering something. Right. Um, and then I think the other thing, um, which, you know, Bob, I mentioned is he wrote in the foreword to my book, um, is such a beautiful example of like Jesus calling those disciples back to what I view is his primary teaching, right? When he got up to announce um, the focus of his ministry, he read from Isaiah that he was come, coming to liberate the captive and to bring relief to the poor. And um, and I, I mean, I truly believe that that was uh, a key focus of his earthly ministry and what he wants us to do um, as his sort of living body in the world. Um, and I feel like one of the challenges is that we tend to spiritually abstract that teaching um, into something that doesn't have a lot of relevance to the here and now, um, which, you know, I, um, Bob and, and others like him who are, are actively tackling sort of that, the hunger and the poverty in today's world, I think 
once you kind of capture or once you kind of realize that that's a real aspect of what Jesus was asking and is asking us to do, it's very um, convicting. Like it makes you feel compelled to try to do something. Um, and so I really appreciate his insights and I agree 100% with what he's said. Yeah, I love that that thought, just um, Bob, that you brought out that that Christ doesn't teach right away, right? Like he's not just there preaching; he's building the fire, he's preparing the meal, um, and and that's the model for us, right? Like our inclination is to like do just the opposite um, and think that we're following him when this is the model that that he's really laid out. One other, oh yeah, sorry. To um, say how many times somebody uh, uh, says, "I'm going to talk about uh, what we're going to do this week," and someone says, "Well, let's do it after breakfast." <laughs> um, yeah, I was going to say the other thing that I I really love about what Bob talked about was, I think sometimes we can um, get all caught up in what is what is our role what's the appropriate role that we have in providing aid but not enabling people right um we have a big focus on self-reliance in the church which i think is is good right because if you can lift yourself then you're more likely to be able to lift others but i love um and i was really moved by that poem um and that idea that god God is generous, right? God pours out blessings and abundance. God isn't in the business of, um, you know, only only giving us enough so that we're not spoiled, you know, like, and, and so I feel like if we're really trying to emulate that in our own action, we, we don't need to worry about whether or not what we're doing is, is, you know, taking away somebody's own responsibility or whatever. We just need to be extending that grace in the same way that God um, does, just an abundance, right? Whenever we can, we we covenant to bear burdens um, full stop, right? We, we're, we're not in the business of judging whether or not somebody's burden is good for them. We just try to bear it, you know, we try to lift. So, yeah, I love that idea as well. Yeah, and that comes out in, Bob, the kind of what you highlighted in this story about the disciples not being able to catch any fish, and then they catch, you know, 152, however many. And But Christ gives them the credit, right? Again, like, they haven't done anything, and he's not concerned with, like, um, you know, asserting that, you know, make sure that you... Uh, you know, he give, he's, he's giving them that to them, you know, not just the fish, but also... Um, you know, making them the kind of owners of the the his own bounty, right? I think that mm, uh, just very quickly, uh, I, I hadn't thought about before, but when Ryan was reading that scripture from Isaiah, what Jesus mm, is doing, and with all of his disciples, is to f- free the captives from the mythologies that they hold free the captives from the false teachings, this idea of the uh, uh, the Protestant ethic that we, we get what we earn and that God blesses those who bless themselves. 
these are ideas that we have to be freed from because they prevent us from taking care of the poor. I would just say that when Gloria and I have traveled in different places to, to feed these children, uh, I've not found parents more desperate to feed their children than these parents. They are doing everything they can. Very quick story. In the Philippines a number of years ago, there was one family who had two boys. I asked them about um, their boys in school, and they said, well, unfortunately, they can't go to school because my husband's uh, disabled and I can't earn enough to feed him. So every day they go down to the beach to find shells to sell on the street so that we can have enough to eat. That's the way most of these people are. They're doing everything right now. Now in us. We're not, we're not all of these doing everything that we could. And I think that's what Jesus is, is telling us. Maybe Olive has one. Um, well, I also love the, um, the, the, the inclusion of poetry in your lesson. And thank you, Gloria, for so beautifully rendering that. But at the very beginning, I was, um, really struck by the kind of message of, um, you know, open your nostrils, breathe, breathe it in, open your senses, allow, um, kind of however the devotion, um, and however you experience and worship Christ kind of like allow that to move you and to, to fill you, um, using all of your senses, um, and I think so often, uh, I know at least I just kind of compartmentalize and experience Christ in particular ways rather than really allowing um, his love and grace to just fill my senses um, and allow myself to worship in a way that um, is so expressive of different senses, if that makes sense. Raise him into your heart. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I think that we'll go ahead and officially close. Um, ending with music, the tabernacle at Temple Square, singing a poor wayfaring man of grief, and then Ryan offering our closing prayer. Thank you, Bob. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful uh, at this time for uh, to come uh, before the at the close of this Sunday school lesson and discussion. We are um, grateful for Bob's preparation um, for the beautiful message that uh, he shared with us, um, for the um, the scriptures and the poetry, and for um, Gloria's beautiful renderings. We. Um, pray that the message that Bob has um, shared today will distill on our hearts, um, that we might be able to consider anew uh, Jesus's call for us to um, take care of the poor and to do what we can to alleviate suffering in the world, that we might be able to um, view our discipleship through this new lens, um, and help it to um, shift our understanding of our covenants and our membership 
and our mandate as a true and living church of Jesus in the world to bring about the kingdom of God um, here and now. Father, we pray that we might continue to reflect on these things as we go about our week, our day, uh, that we might be aware of opportunities to lift those we come into contact with and that we might be able to view one another in our shared humanity as sisters and um, brothers, children of God. We love thee and are grateful for the opportunity and the soul-expanding experience we've been able to share with one another this morning. And we pray for these things in the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Greetings. My name is Rebecca DeSchweinitz, and I'm thrilled to serve as a board member at the Dialogue Foundation and as one of the hosts of Dialogue Gospel Study. In each episode, which we record live the second and fourth Sunday of every month, we welcome esteemed speakers from a variety of backgrounds to share their insights and perspectives on the Come Follow Me lessons. Our aim is to spark meaningful conversations about the scriptures, to connect them to our personal experiences and to our understandings and explorations of the gospel. To stay in the loop with our upcoming lessons and this opportunity to engage with Mormon thought, culture, and belief, be sure to visit DialogueJournal.com and sign up for our newsletter. By doing so, you'll receive updates and timely links to join our live stream lessons. Additionally, you can catch up on our past guests and episodes by subscribing to Dialogue Journal on YouTube, Facebook, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcast Network.